Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. We are Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. Cultures come together around potato salad and ketchup. It's not the kind of thing where anyone can wander in off the street and hang out with geishas, right? Like, who gets to do it? The effort of, of everyone who passed down this knowledge, it's not something that you can find easily, even in Japan. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And we've got a very special and unique episode today. Moe is here. She's a former geisha turned YouTube cooking star. That's a combo you don't see every day. Now she makes traditional Japanese meals and has gained quite a following doing that. She did work as a geisha for six years in Kyoto before making the switch. And it's interesting because I think Western society has a lot of misconceptions about geishas. They're shrouded in mystery. But basically, they're professional entertainers who are viewed as masters of grace and charm. They work mainly in tea houses and cater to a pretty exclusive crowd. They're highly respected in Japanese culture. And this is going to be one of our more interesting interviews because we spoke to Moa through her translator, actually. So the voice you'll hear won't actually be hers. It'll be Kaiko, the translator, speaking on her behalf. That's right. And this is, of all the interviews we've done so far on the show... The one in which I learned the most. Absolutely. I walked away from this with a completely different picture of not only what a geisha is, but just kind of 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 some of the differences in the way that that uh, Japanese culture and American culture perceive entertainers and uh, musicians and people that aren't in a traditional line of work. The, The funny thing about that is that in Japan, a geisha is a traditional line of work. Uh, for for many many women to have taken on over the last three hundred years, uh, and and it just amplifies differences between Eastern and Western culture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hand up. I knew nothing about geishas before this. I knew there was a book called Memoirs of a Geisha that got made into a movie, and had never read the book and never seen the movie. So this was fascinating to me, and I, it's it's it almost reminds me of like the British royal family. People love them so much because, at least they think, because they represent the last vestige of a romantic medieval era. And their role is so different now than it was then. But their cultural importance and the tradition that they carry is still so highly significant to the UK. Similarly, in Japan, I mean, several geisha have actually been classified as living national treasures by the Japanese government. That's how deeply entrenched and intertwined they are with Japanese tradition and culture. Right. And I can tell you one thing for sure, Ebbett, neither you or me will ever be classified by the U.S. government as a national treasure. (laughs) That's so disheartening, Tim. How dare you? I know. When people would ask me when I was younger, what do you want to be when you grow up? And other people would say, oh, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a doctor. I'd always say, I want to be uh, classified as a national treasure. Doesn't matter for what or how I earned it, you know, just... National treasure. That's right. But podcasting probably isn't the best road to the top of, of that path. Uh, if you're suggesting podcasters aren't essential personnel or that just anyone with a microphone and an ego could do it, then, uh, well, uh, you might be right, Tim. You might be right. 
But anyway, let's get into hot takes. Speaking of cultural contrasts between the U.S. and Japan, my first question is right on topic here for you. What was your most difficult moment of culture shock? You know, as lame as this is to say, my most difficult moment of culture shock was when I moved away to go to college, I think, because I had never left home before. And that that was the first time that I was forced to to burst the bubble that I grew up in, I guess. Um, it, and it's funny because even traveling abroad relatively extensively over the last, you know, several years, I've, I've always been able to draw on that experience, uh, of, of being away from home and away from what I knew before to be more comfortable coming into situations where I'm totally out of place. Um, and I don't know that it was so much the, the moving away to, college uh but i think it was just the fact that that was the first experience i had uh with having to figure out something completely different to me if there's two things that are true about all of humanity i think it's that humans hate being out of their comfort zone and no matter where it is that they're going to even if it is a really hospitable environment like you know college definitely is it's just, it feels like they're, someone's just ripping you right out of your roots, you know? So I feel like there's, that's one thing. And the second thing that's true is that humans are really good at acclimating to new circumstances. So just as difficult as it is in that moment of going to college for you, I think once you get settled in, it's equally hard to leave. And that's, that becomes your home within a few months. That's right. And you actually end up thriving in that. I, I think it was you know, another situation that I think people could draw from is, you know, the first time you have a, a job, I guess, you know, it's it's really new. Uh, all of a sudden, you have to figure out this new world and start at the bottom and learn something that you've never done before. You're a complete beginner. And once you grasp that and become comfortable with it, you thrive. And that's how growth happens. And I think that's why so many people are drawn to travel. I know that's part of why I'm drawn to travel, because every time you go somewhere new, you have this growth that your your worldview has been expanded that little bit more, and you can never go back to who you were before. I'll end with a quote from The Office, the Office finale. No matter how you get there or where you end up, human beings have this miraculous gift to make that place home. I think that's a Michael Scott quote. Yeah, man. I, I agree. Next question. Are co-working spaces bullshit? I don't think so. I mean, to me, it's it's a way to get out of the house. It's a way to network and it's a way to kind of feel like I'm getting out of my my sphere of being a remote worker. Yeah, I know you're a big co-working space guy. And I think that I probably shouldn't knock it until I've tried it because I've never actually been in a co-working space. For those who don't know, co-working spaces are basically places where you pay to for remote workers pay to go and sit and work in kind of a designated workspace. Like you said, there's what, like free coffee, sometimes some snacks, you get to socialize with other people that are also remote workers. I think to me that people would kill to have a job where they don't have to go into an office. So the idea of paying for the privilege of sitting in an office, of having to get up and go into an office seems a little weird to me. I do understand it, in if you're traveling so if you're like you went to oaxaca and you that's where you met Catherine, and um who's on the show and if you don't know anybody and you're trying to like kind of make friends you're there for a few months you want to meet people other remote workers that i think it's great that's a great place to, to do co-working i can't see myself ever doing something like that in my home city 
Yeah, I mean, and like I said, I get why people don't get it. But you you hit on what I was just going to say, which is that if you've never tried co-working, the first time you should do it should be when you're traveling somewhere because it is the best way to meet some someone. And in fact, every time I've been somewhere for an extended period abroad, the friends that I've made have been through the co-working space that I joined. That's true in probably at least three different countries, you know, that I've been to. So I I I have, I advocate for that for sure. So what is the benefit of a co-working space over a coffee shop to you or a library? It's more conducive to work. Like a good co- co-working space will have a call room where you can do calls uh, without having to worry about annoying everybody else that's in the room. Okay. And oh, I need to issue a retraction. Uh, earlier, I said that office quote was from Michael Scott. It was not. It was actually from my favorite character, Creed Bratton, which is a pretty egregious mistake. So I do apologize for that. Creed Bratton, legend. All right. On this side, one thing that we noted in this interview with Moe is the food that she prepares and how it's different from what Westerners see in uh, the media uh, portrayals of Japan. And I'm curious as to what your thoughts are about the biggest misrepresentations in food and travel media. See, this is a great question. But the thing is, as we've talked about before, I don't watch travel TV shows. So I don't have a great, uh, I don't really have my finger on the pulse of that. But I will say that, especially when she was talking about the ketchup uh, proclivity that Japanese have, which we'll get into shortly with um, with Moe, it reminded me that we as Americans view the cuisine of other cultures with this kind of starry-eyed filter as though, you know, uh, the French and the Japanese and the Thai and all of these, these other cultures whose food we, and the Italians, these food that we kind of idealize is on another level that we couldn't possibly aspire to. And what she kind of talks about is how they are eating like what we would consider to be like junk food all the time, you know, like fried food, ketchup on everything. Um, my favorite meal in Thailand, I don't know what you call it, but it's a bread bowl filled with mushroom soup. And it was not, it's not a Thai, Thai dish at all. It was just like a, it reminded me of like a bread bowl, like with clam chowder you get in New England. And it was, I was like kind of sick that week. So I wanted something that was just kind of like basic and bland. And I went back to this restaurant like four times and got that same meal. And it just was struck me as such a basic like Western thing to make. It wasn't, had nothing to do with like Thai cuisine, but they just did it really well. So I always say, don't be afraid to try Western food abroad. Don't be afraid to try fast food abroad because you can, you can get some crazy McFlurry flavors in Barcelona that you'll never be able to get here. Okay. That was an extensive answer. Yeah. I probably didn't even answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's fine. It'll, it was your answer to the question. So that's all that matters. <laughs> okay. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Evan, but it's happened to me several times in in recent years where all of a sudden I'll just start getting a magazine. Like I never subscribed to it at all, but it just starts showing up at my house. And this has happened recently with Men's Journal. And so I just got an issue of Men's Journal in the mail yesterday. <laughs> and one of the headlines on the cover of the magazine said, shh, keep these whiskeys secret. And I couldn't help but think, this is the cover of the magazine. You're doing the exact opposite of keeping these whiskeys a secret. And I'm wondering if you think, because I do, do you think that this is bullshit marketing or is it just lack of being able to write a better headline? 
I think they're doing exactly what we do as travel writers is they're trying to write a hook that is a little bit misleading that sparks your interest. It's like, obviously people are like, Ooh, why do I want to keep, why are they trying to keep me, keep this whiskey secret? Like, what's the secret here? I know I want to be in the know and it's lame. It's kind of dumb, but like we, 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 I like to think aren't as lame as that, but we definitely do similar things in our headlines to try and get people to click. Right. And it's, you know, it's the same thing as like, I now, when I work with a new contributor uh, at Matador, I explicitly will tell a lot of them not to use the term hidden gems <laughs> because it, it's the same thing. It's like, it's like talking about a hidden gem in a travel article is the exact same thing as saying, Shh, keep these whiskeys a secret on the, on the cover of a magazine that you're sending out to people's house. What I'm most interested in is you said you were getting magazines unsolicited. People are just sending you magazines. That reminds me of all of these texts I've been getting from local politicians asking me to vote for them. I'm, have you been getting these recently? No, not not this year. But I'll tell you what I have been getting is a ton of emails. Like I got probably 15 emails over the weekend from uh, that were politically charged just out of nowhere. Like I haven't really gotten many since the election cycle ended. And all of a sudden this last weekend, my inbox just blew up. Yeah. I mean, number one, how do these people get our emails and our phone numbers? And number two, I think it's always hilarious because they're they're run by campaign staffers. So it's like, so, hey, like I'm Jen and I'm working for like Betsy's campaign to run for the mayor of, of whatever or city councilor. Can we count on your vote? And I, I've been getting so many of these in the last few weeks. So I finally started responding just to see what would happen. And she was like, hey, can we count on your vote? And I said, you have a solid 40% shot. <laughs> and she responds, great. That's great to hear. <laughs> She's like, is there any other questions we can answer for you? She's probably just happy somebody responded that wasn't like telling her to, to F off. I said, I'm pretty busy. Can you come pick up my ballot for me? She says, uh, ballot drop. I still can't decide if she's like a robot or not at this point. She says, ballot drop off is between uh, March 24th and April 6th. And I responded, mm, can't do the 6th. Can you do the 8th? <laughs> she says, uh, the candidate will be in touch with you soon to answer your very, your personal question. Like, thank you for for engaging with us. But I've started to do this. And now every time someone texts me about a political candidate, I just respond. But it's actually been quite entertaining. Yeah, I think they're actual people, but they are working through a dashboard on their computer to send out all these text messages, you know? So it's not like you're texting their personal cell phone. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure they have like templates that they use for, you know, standard responses. So, right. so yeah, people are asking me like, oh yeah, like how's your social life going? I'm like, ah, oh, it's pretty good. I've, I've got like six... uh campaign staffers on the hook might have plans this weekend like might might they might just be uh, talking to me for my vote but i don't know right on yeah so that's how i've been handling and entertaining myself during these uh for these spam political texts oh you got to do something man but uh yeah that's about it great so we're gonna get right into our interview with moe and kaiko her translator who you'll be hearing and we'll see you guys on the other side all right moe welcome to the show Thank you so much for being here. It's really a privilege to have you on. You're doing some really cool things right now with your YouTube channel. But first, can you talk a little bit about the history and tradition of geishas in Japan and exactly what is a geisha? So there are many geishas throughout Japan, but um, she is from Kyoto and the History of geisha dates back 
to when people, you know, when they visit Yasaka Shrine in Kyoto, um, they would serve sweets, pastries like dango, um, rice cakes. So that's the origin of, of the culture. It, it used to be just offering sweet pastry to anyone who visited the shrine. And then it became what's known uh, as Gion, which is a district in Kyoto known for uh, uh, Geiko. And what they do is they perform, dance, um, they serve meals. And why did you uh, decide to become a geisha? And what was the preparation like to get yourself ready for the job? So Geiko, the career usually begins at the age of 15. And at the age of 15, Moe was a high school student like everybody else. And she got a school assignment and it was to interview 10 people and about their professions. So she, um, she has a grandfather who teaches calligraphy in Japan, in Kyoto. Um, and some of the students were geisha. So she got that connect. She had that connection. So she interviewed ten um, geishas, and she learned so much that she didn't know before about this profession. And it's just she was so impressed by it, and just wanted to be part of that culture. And what ex- what is a typical workday uh, for a geisha? When does it start, and what are some of the main tasks and and kind of the routine? Um, that takes place in the in the industry. So they go to school every day to practice many of these performance art performance arts like um, dance or play flute, drums. So they go to these uh, schools at around eight ten a.m. Um, and then until noon or maybe in early afternoon. And then they start to get ready. They put makeup on themselves. They put on the kimono. And then they head to work at around 6 p.m. until almost midnight. And when their work is done, they head home, take off the makeup, and go to bed at around oh, like 3 a.m. That's a long day. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you're at work... What is the main um, task or duty or art that you're performing? They would serve food and then they pour sake, you know, just have conversation with with the customers. And then when it comes time to show the performance, they will dance, they'll play the flute, drums, um, just, you know, entertain the guests. And separately, sometimes they just go to an event and just show their dancing or, you know, any of these skills that they have. Geishas in Japan seem like they're much more um, important and respected than just a traditional entertainer would be in the United States who does similar things. What is behind the immense respect and reverence that geishas receive in Japan. Why, why is it so such a respected profession? The reason that so many people uh, see geisha with high respect 
um, is that it's real. It's not something that you could achieve overnight or even you can't achieve in a couple of years. It's a tradition of over 300 years passed down from generation to generation. And everything they wear, everything they do is just, they wear the most real old kimono with so much cultural value. And they even like hair accessories that they wear is traditional. The effort of, of everyone who passed down this knowledge is, it's not something that you can find easily, even in Japan. And from what we understand, and uh, of course, our our knowledge of the culture is very limited, but from what we do understand, geishas are asked to give up a lot of uh, kind of normal traditions, like starting a family, um, having a traditional routine of a young girl. Did that bother you at all? And and how did it kind of play into to going to, to school? Did it, how did it impact your schooling and how did it impact your uh, teenage years and adolescence? She was surrounded by so many role models and the kind of woman, the kind of geisha that she aspired so strongly to be, to become one day. And so that was her goal. That was her priority. And everything else is sort of just fizzled away. It was less of an important, less of a, she placed more value on achieving that goal. It, it wasn't that it bothered her that she couldn't do this or that. It's not the kind of thing where anyone can wander in off the street and hang out with geishas, right? Like who gets to do it? It's not a place where you could just go casually. It's usually referral only. So you would have to know someone who can take you there. And a lot of foreign customers, they come with Japanese people and they kind of explain beforehand what kind of place it is and sort of etiquette and how to enjoy. What do I, what would I have to do to be able to attend that kind of event? Just know somebody who is in the right circles? So yeah, 90, like most geisha places are referral only, but there are um, other ways visitors can enjoy just to meet and maybe see them dance for almost like for tourists. Uh, but if you want to go to the house, sit down, have a meal, you know, and have conversation just to have the full experience. You would really have to know someone, but there are also some services that kind of helps you navigate and get your reservations. So there are ways. What was it that you most enjoyed about the lifestyle? Uh, and is it, if there's anything you miss, what is it that you miss? And also, what did you not enjoy about uh, the geisha career for things that she enjoyed her achievements you know going from not being able to perform certain things or to play certain instruments you know through practice being able to do that and a lot of customers they're sort of long-time customers so they know and they remember the day that she debuted and they sort of really are happy for her growth and development and just her career being uh, flourishing. And in terms of things that were hard during the career, um, so she started at the age of 16 and suddenly, you know, being in an environment surrounded by 
adults. That was just really hard, like any other job or any other person who would be in that situation. So the profession has been around for centuries. I'm not sure if it's, you know, less popular. There are less, there are fewer women doing it now than there were 200 years ago. But what do you see as the future of the profession, the future of geishas in Japan? In, in another 200 years, do you think it'll still be around or do you think it will have faded? Right now, obviously, because of the coronavirus and pandemic, um, we cannot go to these places. And the, as an industry, it is um, everyone is struggling. But from what she hears from people, a lot of people think that geisha and geiko, this world is different. But she sees a lot of independent women and, you know, they, they have a very strong pride in, in the city, in, in their career. They take so much pride and, and also customers too. They, they, they love the city. And so she thinks that Geisha would remain as it is, both as culture and as a profession. So um, you've kind of made a name for yourself on YouTube as a bit of an influencer and and uh, and and more of a family person these days and we're curious as to why you decided to change careers and what brought that about her career as Zagesha was in the past and she retired and married and had a baby she had been working since she was 16 so being home, being housewife with a baby, she it was a very different world um, from being a busy working woman. She felt less productive. You know, raising a baby is not an easy task. And that's when she uh, had this request from an American YouTuber, wanted to see what a life of a Japanese mom and baby is like. And that's when she learned that there is such a thing as a YouTuber as a career. And she started to film her first YouTube video with her iPhone. And she picked the topics that was very close to her. And that's, that's something that she does every day, which is wear a kimono and cook Japanese food. Talk a little bit about your YouTube channel and what's the inspiration behind it? What are your what are you doing now? What's your favorite kinds of videos to make, your favorite kinds of things to cook, and why you love showing that to people? In the beginning, it was a trial and error, but the viewers respond. They give feedback, they, they comment, they give advice. That sort of closeness to the viewer was in a stark contrast with the loneliness that she was feeling cut from the outside world as, as a housewife. Um, so that's that was her inspiration. Her video is about everyday food people in Japan eat. Not so much as a Japanese food as a label. Um, so she find these feedbacks very interesting. Like sometimes people are surprised that like how much Japanese people uh, put ketchup on their food, for example. Um, which you know you wouldn't you wouldn't guess, <laughs> but we do. What what exactly do you put ketchup on that you you think others other cultures might not? Because I used to put ketchup on everything. I'm a big ketchup guy, big ketchup fan. 
what's really good with ketchup that you might not expect to be good with ketchup? Um, there's a couple, I think. Um, the one probably that best known would be uh, Napolitan, which is, um, I believe it's Japanese made, <laughs> but it's basically spaghetti made with ketchup as a main sauce. Um, and then you put like other ingredients. We also eat cabbage roll with to uh, ketchup. Lastly, uh, <laughs> the dish called omurice, which is uh, rice and covered with omelet is usually served with ketchup. Rice and omelet and ketchup. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tim's having that for dinner tonight. <laughs> I might. I like ketchup with, with eggs. Uh, it's good. I used to put ketchup on all of my pasta. I think before I discovered tomato sauce, ketchup and noodles, that's all I ate. <laughs> bring it back to when I was 13. It's, it's a, vers a versatile condiment. I think it's underrated. It's great. It's great. Kind of on that note, I, I mean, American television and media is full of Japanese food, you know, with Anthony Bourdain and Street Food Asia and all these other travel shows. Uh, I'm curious what your favorite Japanese dish that you'd recommend to a foreigner that they might not have heard of before. So there, there's a couple of things um, that are not like entirely Japanese, but things that we have here in America, but also like uh, with the Japanese twist, so to speak. Um, something like potato salad. It's huge in Japan. <laughs> um, but it's not, I guess the difference is, what would you put in a potato salad in America? Mayonnaise? Are you putting ketchup in there? No. <laughs> uh, but we put like sliced cucumbers, sliced carrots. Um, so like a slight variation of things. On the same topic what is your favorite japanese dish that you would recommend to a foreigner so if i'm going to japan i have one meal that i'm going to have there before i leave that's it one meal what, what do i eat that would be tonkatsu which is a deep fried pork cutlet oh i like that and okay <laughs> there are a lot of uh restaurants that just serve tonkatsu, like specialized in tonkatsu. So okay. that would be something that she would recommend. Deep fried pork cutlet, smothered in ketchup. Love that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and some spaghetti, some <laughs> potato salad. Yeah. Have you guys heard of the show on Netflix called Midnight Diner? Yes, I've watched it actually a couple of times, but I can't understand anything that they're saying. Okay. Uh, so, but it is, it's an entertaining show. It is, and it features like, Kind of like what we've been talking about, like, you know, just like everyday Japanese dish that's not special at all, but people find comfort in comfort food. Yeah. Comfort food. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I think that is all we have. Thank you guys both so much for, for joining us and answering our questions. I've been checking out your channel. Really, really enjoyed that pizza episode. Oh, yeah. My husband is a New Yorker, so he had a lot to say, too. Oh, good. <laughs> that Italian accent just <laughs> cracked me up. <laughs> She'll be uploading the Napolitan ketchup spaghetti recipe soon. So. Oh, I'll, I'll take notes on that. Definitely. Hi, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, again, it's good to meet you guys, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. ナポリタンができたらじゃあリンクを送りますね。
right, Evan. Well, that was one heck of an interview. I think the takeaways this week are going to be a little bit different than normal. Uh, obviously, you, as our esteemed listener, the odds of you becoming a geisha are not even slim to none. They're like pinprick to Dude, none. Dude, don't dash hopes like that. I'm a practical, honest person, and I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to become a geisha. Yeah, well, this is, there's a reason this isn't called the inspirational, motivational section of the podcast, because Tim will take your dreams and just dash them. <laughs> So we're going to talk about some of the potentially more actionable takeaways from this interview. And thank you again to Moe and Kaiko for joining us. They were both great sports and gave us some pretty fascinating insights on uh, what geishas are, what the tradition is all about, what the lifestyle is, and shed a more human light on it, which was really cool. So for me, one of the biggest takeaways was that they really just revere these people so much when girls grow up they grow up wanting to be geishas they held these people in such high esteem that i think we don't ha tim can you think of anything similar that we have in american society not off the top of my head no i think that i don't know of anything that parallels uh anything i've seen anywhere in north america to be honest and why do you think that is why do you think do you think that the japanese people have uh are more deeply rooted in their centuries old culture than we are do you think they have more of a respect for tradition for history what is that i do i agree i think that's exactly what it is in fact centuries old culture in the united states is uh almost an oxymoron because we haven't even been around i think that you know we haven't quite had the time to build the cultural legacy that a country like japan has in the united states we haven't been around long enough to develop such cultural stamps uh particularly when it comes to to professions uh i think that it would be much more likely that there would be something like this in in europe or africa places where there have been more long-term established societies than in the united states I feel like we need that, Tim, right? In Japan, they like care about this stuff. Geishas go to school to learn how to carry themselves with a social grace. We don't do that in the US. We don't have any social graces. We're just a bunch of awkward idiots posting dumb shit on Instagram, sending like you up texts at 3 a.m. There is no art of communication here. <laughs> no one is socially adept at all, including me. So I think we could use some of that kind of education. Another thing that really stood out to me about this interview was that kind of the entire, her entire career field and the fact that she's here talking to us about it in itself dispels a lot of, I think, misconceptions about Japanese culture, not just with the geisha lifestyle, but also with Japanese food. I mean, I had no idea until tonight that the Japanese put ketchup on so many things. I would not have guessed that. And that leads me to my second takeaway, which I think we're on the same page for, Tim. Ketchup is king. Yeah. Forget these notions that foreign food is somehow more elegant. Some dishes are, some aren't. But one thing is clear and consistent. Ketchup is not giving up its crown. Not now, not ever. It doesn't matter if you're at a barbecue in Kansas or a nice restaurant in Tokyo. I think it is. I think it is. And I think... You know, the conversation about the potato salad, everything we talked about with food today kind of shows like how kind of cultures come together around potato salad and ketchup, and <laughs> then they diverge to go deeper on other things. I mean, who also doesn't love spaghetti noodles? You can find those all over the world. You can stick them in dishes, and you can branch out from your normal dinner routine. 
cultures come together over ketchup and potato salad. That's that's one of Tim's best quotes, I think. It just it just goes to show <laughs> cultures come together over potato salad and ketchup. Just a no brainer. Talk about like bridging the global divide and you know world peace and yeah. being able to reach across the aisle. It's not diplomacy. It's fucking ketchup and potato salad. That's what it is. I'll tell you what, man. I mean, and this is a takeaway for the ages: is nobody ever is going to argue and say that noodles are not amazing. Okay, like it doesn't matter what part of the world you're from. It doesn't matter what your political or social ideologies are. Everyone loves noodles. They're not going anywhere. Bring them on. The great equalizer, noodles and ketchup. And that's the other thing. Food shaming. I feel like people condiment shame all the time over here about, oh, you put ketchup on pasta. I used to put ketchup on pasta for until I was like, I don't know, 15 or something. Loved it. Ketchup on every any, anything, spaghetti, uh, macaroni, anything. But I, got, I think I got shamed out of it. People were like, you can't, you, you got to grow up, man. You got to stop putting ketchup on your noodles. I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess so. No, Japanese, best food, she says. This is a professional YouTube cooking star. What's the number one dish I should have when I go to Japan? Ketchup on uh, cabbage, a cabbage roll, cabbage roll. Cabbage rolls. Yeah, you got to have some ketchup with your Whatever rolls. your imagination can conjure. And and there's no need. The other takeaway here is it, when you travel to Japan, there's no need to stop at teppanyaki and sushi. You can go all the way to having a fried pork cutlet and call that like your most authentic Japanese meal because that's what they're cooking at home, just like you're cooking fried pork cutlet at home as well. It goes way back to Nino and his reveal of the number one pizza style in Naples. Margarita pizza with french fries and cut up hot dogs kaiko's favorite episode so if you haven't heard it go back and tune in it's a good one i mean everybody just loves these simple things everyone loves them everyone's not an american export everyone just everyone knows good taste everyone just knows everyone likes to experiment everyone likes to get a little weird with their toppings no shame no shame over here no judgment whatsoever and i think our last takeaway here is how it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what you do and what you want to be doing. A career pivot is always possible. If you're a geisha, if you've been living that lifestyle for six years as Moe had, and she wants to become a YouTube cooking personality, you can do that. She did it, and she's actually gained uh, a small level of global notoriety for it. I mean, she's got people on the other side of the world requesting what they can sub in for the noodles that she's using because they can't find those in their own grocery stores. She's really built a global audience, not even from her original career. You know, she is living proof that you can do what you want to do. Yeah. I think that that inspired me to pivot to a YouTube cooking channel. That's just straight up like ketchup and pizza based. That's it. Do you think ketchup would go on pizza? I'm just going to put this out there. I I, I've probably dipped pizza crust in ketchup at some point in my life. Because I, now I'm trying to really back up what I just said about, you know, not judging or shaming people because pizza is my favorite food. But would I put ketchup on pizza? Would I? Is that something I could tolerate? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, marinara sauce isn't really that different than ketchup. I know it's not. I know there's just something unholy about it. I don't know. But anyway, Moe felt unproductive, as many of us do, wanted to switch careers, took advantage of an opportunity, and made it happen. I'm going to go against Tim here. If you're listening and want to become a gay show, you go for it. You do it. Don't let him get you down. 
You know, Evan, we actually, you know, we were kind of saying there might not be a career takeaway here, but I think there might be our greatest career takeaway of all. The the takeaway of what Moe did is actually phenomenal because she saw something that was successful. She took it, pivoted it for herself and made it successful in her niche. She saw the American food YouTuber who interviewed her thought that she could do that herself and she took it applied it to her own situation and her own audience and built it up from that. And now she has this incredible YouTube channel that has a ton of viewers and she's making a living off of it. Like you, you can do that. Exactly. And she had no prior experience in that. She, her previous job couldn't have had less to do with, uh, with what she does now. And she's done incredibly well. Yeah. So make sure you check out Moe on YouTube at Kimono Mom. And she's also Kimono Mom on Instagram as well. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks again to Moe and Kaiko for joining us. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and join us next week when we'll have another fresh episode for you guys. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And we'll see you guys later.